Who told you you can eat my cookies? No! Put that cookie down! Aspect Radio. From beautiful Tuscaloosa, Alabama, happy holidays to all and welcome to Aspect Radio. I'm Ben Flanagan. And I'm Corey Kraft. Today we review a pair of contenders this award season and look at the Golden Globe and Screen Actors Guild nominations. But first, we got a sneak peek at the latest from Joel and Ethan Cohen, their interpretation of Charles Portis's novel, True Grit. Mr. Cogburn. In your four years as U.S. Marshal, how many men have you shot? Shot or killed. Let us restrict it to killed so that we may have a manageable figure. Mr. Cogburn? What do you want, girl? I'm looking for the man who killed my father. The man's name is Tom Cheney, and I need somebody to go after him. What's your name? My name is Maddie Ross. Are you some kind of law? I'm a Texas Ranger. I know Cheney. It is at least a two-man job taking him alive. Marshal Cogburn? Can we depart this afternoon? We? I'm going with you. Congratulations. You've graduated from Marauder to Wet Nurse. You're being followed. What do we do, Marshal? This time, the Coens reteam with the dude himself, Jeff Bridges, who takes on the role of U.S. Marshal Rooster Cogburn, a character arguably made legendary by the Duke himself, John Wayne, in 1969. In Portis' story, a scoundrel named Tom Chaney murders a farmer, prompting his daughter, Maddie Ross, to avenge his death. She then hires the mean and grizzled and often drunk Cogburn, who teams with a Texas Ranger named Labeef, here played by Matt Damon, as all three set out to find Cheney, arrest him, and have him hanged. Corey, we've seen the Coen stretch and flip all sorts of genres, from screwball comedy to gangster films to film noir, but never have they lighted out for the now barren western territories, which is a place I'm sure that we all were happy to see them visit. Now, some have expressed an initial concern with the brothers' announcement they tackle another remake after what happened with the Lady Killers, their own feelings accepted here, but when word got out that the Coens would, quote-unquote, reinterpret the Portis novel with their special blend of tone and, pardon the term, grit, those worries quickly vanished. So let's not mince words here and put on the table that you are an unabashed Cohen apologist. Not that there's anything wrong with that. For the most part, I'm one too. But you are one of the few who will go to the grave defending mutt like the lady killers. So I'm going to fire you a softball and phrase the introduction this way with you completing the sentence. True Grit is Joel and Ethan Cohen's best film since blank. Well, it's their best film since A Serious Man, uh, which is their film from last year. I mean, I'm not one of those, uh, like our friend Mascalici, who has seen, has believed that the Coens have been in a slump uh, since, I, I guess, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I'm not sure where he cuts it off. Maybe the Big Lebowski. You know, I love, pretty unabashedly, as you said, their output this decade. True Grit, well, it fits right in there. It's it's another great film from the Coen brothers. Uh, in a in a line of great films, I'd say that's... I mean, I wouldn't call The Lady Killers a great film, but it is really fun and really funny and, and, and entertaining. But from No Country now to True Grit, they've made four great movies in a row. And I guess I honestly kind of expect them to be rewarded for it again come Oscar time. Well, it seems like in my conversations with you in the past, 
you're not one to sort of look back at the Coen's previous work and compare their new films to that. I think that you often regard their new films from 2000 to now as being some of their best films and right up there with the, I think, elite films of their filmographies, say The Barton Finks and The Raising Arizona's The Miller's Crossings. I think that you would probably throw The Man Who Wasn't There, Intolerable Cruelty, and A Brother Art Thou, and perhaps even The Lady Killers to some extent into that category as well. So I think that we sort of compare these films differently or yeah. see them differently, although I think that the Coen brothers are some of the, a pair of the greatest filmmakers of all time. But with True Grit, I'm at a place now where I am perfectly comfortable calling what they have done with this film a remake mm-hmm. of the John Wayne film. And I know a lot of people were apprehensive uh, in doing that just because they didn't want to think of the Coen brothers as guys in Hollywood who remake films because that's sort of a taboo in these circles anyway. But they're almost entirely similar, these movies, not only in terms of the content, because the dialogue is surprisingly similar between these two movies. It's almost the exact same, but also in tone, though, to the Coen's credit, this is nowhere near as goofy, but there is some of that edge, I guess you could mm-hmm. say. And, you know, I, I haven't read the novel, but I imagine the two screenplays uh, for the original film and this one do adapt the dialogue pretty closely from that. From By all accounts, there are scenes lifted, you know, pretty, pretty straightforwardly from the original film. Uh, the climax of the film, I'd say, uh, is one example where, where Rooster Cogburn, played by Jeff Bridges, and uh, the bandit leader, Lucky Ned Pepper, played by Barry Pepper, sort of exchange, I, I guess, insults mm-hmm. to one another. That's pretty similar, I think. But, like you said, this movie is considerably less goofy than the original. It doesn't have Glenn Campbell singing, and it doesn't have Kim Darby just being whiny the whole time. You know, the, the young lady they found to play, Maddie Ross, Haley Steinfeld, makes a pretty assured debut here in, in some pretty pretty remarkable ways. She, she holds her own with what I would say is a great performance from Jeff Bridges and a great, though, sort of shadowed performance by, by Matt Damon. You know, he's not going to get the recognition that he probably should for this movie, uh, just because he's sort of overshadowed as the sort of goofy comic relief by, uh, I guess, by Bridges' more forceful performance. Yeah, I totally agree with you that Haley Steinfeld, I think she almost acts circles around Jeff Bridges and Matt Damon and everybody else in the movie. She gets the meteor stuff early on, Mm -hmm. especially during this bartering scene with, I think he might be a a banker or an accountant. Colonel Stonehill. Right. Who knows what he is. It's a great scene. It's a great scene. But going in, I was really skeptical about her performance as I am about most child actors. I'm not a big fan of these polished, professionally trained actors in Hollywood because they come across as completely privileged and precocious in an extremely annoying way. And given the impact she needed to have on the audience, I really think that I might have set my expectations a little too high for this character where a child actor could not have achieved those. But she totally clears it. She's got a lot of spunk and she's not annoying at all. I think that she never oversells And when she does, I think it's deliberate on the part of her and the Coen brothers because Maddie has this sort of forced, or she's forced this education unto herself to a point where she can't really help but project this precocious attitude, yet she's also acting on the part of her family. So she has to sort of possess these qualities of a leader in somebody who can basically become the breadwinner for the family now that the father is dead. She's probably the most learned of her family now, and she has to go toe-to-toe with, say, a U.S. Marshal, whether or not he is a drunkard or 
these accountants who are trying to basically swindle her out of money that she is owed. So I thought that she was fantastic. She she really is. And and you know, back to the Cohen's contributions via screenplay, you know, it's so important that this movie I don't not only replicate, I guess, the period qualities, but they never give her material that would seem condescending. You know, they never sort of pander to an audience expecting what a child actor would traditionally deliver. She gets some great lines. You know, everybody in this movie gets great lines. This movie has dialogue that you saw. It's so rich, you can almost bathe in it. It's just as exciting, I'd say, as like the, as, as any of the action scenes. Are you some kind of law? That's right. I'm a Texas Ranger. That may make you a big noise in that state. In Arkansas, you should mind that your Texas trappings and title do not make you an object of fun. Why have you been ineffectually pursuing Janie? He shot and killed a state senator named Bibbs in Waco, Texas. Bibbs' family put out a reward. You know anything about the whereabouts of Janie? Well, he's in the territory, and I hold out little hope for you winning your bounty. Why is that? My man will beat you to it. I've hired a deputy marshal, the toughest one they have. Well, I will throw in with you and your marshal. No. Marshal Cogburn and I are fine. It'll be to our mutual advantage. Your marshal, I presume, knows the territory. I know Cheney. Totally. But during the first hour of the film, I mean, I'm not going to walk away from this saying that this is the pure Coen Brothers experience. Mm -hmm. I did find flaws in the movie, and this might be to your chagrin. But during the first hour of it, I sort of took myself out of it as I was watching it. And I said to myself, or I asked myself, are we watching something of the same caliber as The Searchers or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid as I was watching it? And I would answer myself, yes, I think we are. I really do. Wow. I enjoyed it that much. But I think I got ahead of myself in asking that question, and it's not fair to the movie for me to do that, mm -hmm. because there's a point in the movie where I realized there's something really missing from this, and please pardon this term, but I think what it's missing is grit. I think the film promised out of the gate when we first heard the Coens were attached to it, and we, when we first saw the trailer for this, the, I guess, expression would have been, this ain't your granddaddy's true grit. It wouldn't be this hokey, uh, sort of comical um, vehicle for one star or brand that we were just, where we were just going to get the same version of the same old thing, obviously, which we did with the first one, which is a lot of fun, but still, there would be an edge. There would be higher stakes. It would be more violent. It would have a mean streak, but... I think about an hour into it, I just started not feeling it anymore. It became more of a comedy. I think that it, had this movie been nominated for Golden Globes, I would have thrown it into the comedy category, actually. It, it was actually submitted in that category. Was it really? Yeah. I didn't know that. I understand what you're saying. You know, and I had the same apprehension before the movie was released when it was announced that it was getting a PG-13 rating. I was kind of like taken aback by that because I don't know that the Coen brothers have ever made a PG-13 rated drama. So I was kind of I was kind of bothered by that, but what you have here is, for my money, a pretty perfect example of the Coens going mainstream without really losing what makes them so special as filmmakers by making this old-fashioned adventure story that is okay for for grandparents and parents and even some of the older children to see because the PG thirteen it's still pretty it's still pretty a hard PG thirteen. There's some scenes of violence that I was kind of surprised got by in a PG-13 film. But the fact that the Coen brothers made a movie that I felt was so special and so so fun and so touching and moving in the end, you know, without sacrificing what makes them so great as filmmakers. I mean, the way I described this after the movie, it's a Coen brothers movie for people who don't really like Coen brothers movies. 
but it's also a Coen Brothers movie for those of us who, you know, love their more esoteric works. It's not a serious man in terms of Coen quirks, but it is, I mean, it does have its its fair share of them, and it is, uh, I mean, just from, from my money, just really, really, a really lovely movie that's surprisingly moving in ways that they've never been in the end. It looks great. It is moving, and you really have to believe in the Haley Seinfeld character right. uh, to really latch onto this, and I totally do. She's the heart of this movie, and it's great. And I do agree with you in that this is a Coen Brothers film that everybody can enjoy, and it's a Western that everybody can enjoy because you have an extremely strong female central character that you don't always get in the world of the Western, and I think that that is appreciated not only on my part, but on the people who have seen this movie and raved about it. But for me, again, the whole thing really sort of kind of started to deflate when we finally meet Tom Chaney at this stream. At that point, the stakes I mentioned before, they seem to sort of totally disappear. Mm -hmm. And that might be the point, given that Tom Chaney is portrayed as a bit of a simpleton here by Josh Brolin and wouldn't take seriously a girl smaller than the gun that she's holding and pointing at him. And once we see Ned Pepper is actually this leader of this gang and he's calling the shots... Tom Chaney becomes a complete, I don't know, in my in my opinion, kind of a red herring in this story. And we don't spend enough time with Ned to let any of the hate and desire that we had for Tom Chaney, we don't let that grow. And we don't really want the retribution to sort of point in his direction, even though he has sort of kidnapped Maddie at this point. And I think that by the end of the movie, we get a bit of an epilogue or an ending that isn't really earned. And I would say that and I really don't want to give anything away because I think that this is a bit of a, not really a mystery because we know what they're after at all times and it certainly does take a left turn or two. But it does go in a direction where I think that the characters who we have grown to love and the actors who have given such great performances, they don't get the ending that they are owed because they've done such a great job leading up to it. I don't think that we are rewarded and I don't think that they are rewarded. And we're sort of introduced to a separate universe, apart from what we've seen leading up to that. And that sort of left me a little cold. Well, I, I, I guess I see what you're saying. That really didn't bother me at all. I guess I'm just used to you know, the Coen brothers delivering atypical or, or unusual epilogues to their movies that don't necessarily leave their characters, I don't know, in a place that would be traditional. So, that, I mean, I guess that, did, that didn't really bother me. I didn't have that same problem because... I mean, I thought that this this epilogue that you're describing, without again giving too much away, the the very end of that, you know, which is one of the most moving scenes that the Coen Brothers have ever filmed, in 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 a very in a very understated way, which is appropriate for the character. Yeah, I think some people who were disappointed with where No Country for Old Men might have left off, where they thought they had been cheated by the Coens, or cheated by Cormac McCarthy for that matter. They might have that same feeling here to some extent, but I agree that you sort of get a more moving feeling, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people will have a different opinion than me, and one like yours, where they say, well, that was probably the right thing to do. Yeah. Well, so, we, we um, I hate to, to waste our special guest here. We do have Phil Owen in studio who, who saw the movie with us. So, Phil, why, why don't you give us your, your brief thoughts real quick on True Grit before we move on? Well, um, Honestly, I kind of think of it as a Cohen comedy, just because it never, it doesn't really feel that intense and exciting to me, mm -hmm. but it stands up there with, with everything they've, every comedy they've ever made, easily, and I, it's funny that you, that you say it was submitted for 
the uh, the Golden Globes. The Golden Globes. Well, what happened was it was submitted to the Golden Globes in the comedy category, and uh, the tourist was submitted in the drama category. And they watched those, and apparently the Hollywood Foreign Press Association can can make the decision to just switch the category <laughs> designation. So they moved True Grit to drama and didn't oh nominate it for yeah. anything. And well, the, the tourist yeah, I was about to say, if it were in contention for comedy and then didn't get nominated because of like the tourist red and the tourist we'll talk more about burlesque. that later <laughs> yeah i'm sure um yeah um, okay but um, um but yeah um no i mean you know it's it's uh i don't think i like it as much as burn after reading as far as cohen comedy as far as cohen comedy or just cohen um, but i think yeah no i think i think it's it's uh it's right up it's right up there and th- that might not be the right way to put that but right up there with um you know the, the lady killers and intolerable cruelty. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean I love those movies. So, um, but no, I mean it's I think it's a it's a it's a great just it's another Coen Brothers movie. It's hard for me to to compare Coen Brothers movies because right. they're all just kind of amazing. They all do exist in their own um, sphere. I yeah, guess. I mean it's it's like how do I? I mean it, it's just you know some of them are incrementally better than others. You know it's not like a. There's there's just not a huge range in quality. They're all just, you know, pretty brilliant in their own special ways. But, uh, yeah, no, this one stands up there. I think uh, Jeff Bridges is, I think we can, we can, uh, he's, he is, you know, we don't have to talk about the dude anymore. I right. This is, I think this is, I think this is better than the dude. I think this is better than Lebowski. And I think, uh, I think he's. Well, at least it's more fresh because we haven't been listening to people to people like to to dumb people who don't like Coen Brothers movies quote quote him, you know, for ten years yet. So right. someday I'll get sick of this too. But for now it's it's you know, it it makes me feel less bad about you know, hating on Jeff Bridges. So well, not not yet. Anyway, we're going to talk about another movie that he was in. Maybe, oh, yeah. maybe that'll come up there. I'm um, not hating on him, but yeah, we'll get to that. One one thing that I do uh, want to bring up before we move on, because uh, I, I think we've nearly exhausted the topic of True Grit, though it is a movie that I do want to see again and again. This movie has a sense of optimism. I feel that weirdly has been has, it's been kind of absent from their later work. It's certainly not in No Country for Old Men. Uh, and Burn After Reading, even The Serious Man, which is one of the most existentially horrifying movies ever made. But this movie, I mean, actually portrays characters who are good and decent in a way that we haven't seen in the Coen Brothers canon since, I would say, debatably, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, even though they're kind of rascals themselves. But, but you know, this right up there with Marge Gunderson and Fargo, right. uh, Francis McDormand's wonderfully, like, positive portrayal of, of a force of good, of an actual force of good in the world that hasn't been corrupted or or Wayland, I well, guess. What what sets this apart from, from other Cohen comedies this decade is that it's not generally dark comedy. Right. There is dark comedy in there, but it's it's not you know, it's overall it's it's more of a it's more of I guess it's just nicer comedy. <clears throat> right. It's not a you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna have to deal with you know, main care, main funny comic relief characters being brutally slaughtered left and right with a hatchet. With a <laughs> with a hatchet, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's 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 a little more calm than than what you would expect from them this past, at least after this past decade. And uh, and that's, I mean, it's nice. It's just, it, you know, it's I guess it's easier to watch 
for that, and it's no less funny for that. So, well, it's a it's a Coen Brothers you can take your grandparents to. Yeah, I know. Oh my god, my my mom wants to see this, and I you know I would never watch a Coen Brothers movie with my mom ever. And uh, well, I guess she really oh, likes Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Yeah, she really likes that. But but you know that was it's been a while, it's been eight years. Yeah. So. Uh, so yeah, but yeah, she wants to see this, and I can happily go, you know, take her to see it. So that's that's really nice. That is nice. Well, True Grid <laughs> is scheduled for a December twenty second release. The Cobb Hollywood sixteen here in Tuscaloosa has not posted their times, but it is expected to open wide. So if you're in the Tuscaloosa area, look for it. It is definitely opening around the state, though. Coming up, we will give our thoughts on the latest film by uh, David O. Russell, The Fighter. Starring Mark, Mark Wahlberg and Christian Bale. So stick around. This is Aspect Radio. Hey, look, mister. We save hard drinks in here for men who want to get drunk fast. And we don't need any characters around to give the joint atmosphere. Is that clear? Aspect Radio. Welcome back to Aspect Radio. We're next going to talk about David O. Russell's new film, The Fighter. About a struggling welterweight boxer, Mickey Ward, played by Mark Wahlberg who is floundering professionally and stuck in the shadows of his domineering mother and manager, played by Melissa Leo, and his brother, Dick, a former fighter-turned-crack addict, played by Christian Bale. Only when he meets a bartender named Charlene, played by Amy Adams, does he begin to come out of his shell, both in the ring and with his family. This is my younger brother. Taught him everything he knows. I'm still his trainer. Mickey, he like, he gets silly. He takes a punishment. I don't know why he does Mickey it. He used to follow his big brother everywhere. Taught you everything, didn't he, honey? You don't fight. Nobody gets paid. You really think your family's looking out for you? Respected fighter, you hope this mismatch doesn't hurt his confidence. Come on, Mick. What has Dickie done for you? You know, he got you into fights. He You're lets you get beat. You're a guy to use against the you other fighters. You can't trust that guy, Mickey. Ain't family. He just wants to use you like a piece yeah, of toy. Mickey better than his own mom. I'm talking about the way you fight your mom. Want you to come with me? You'd be scared. You'd do an open your mouth in the kitchen. Now, David O. Russell's last film was in 2004, a movie called I Heart Huckabees, which was a kind of zany screwball comedy. And it's been six years since he's finished a film. In between that time, he kind of started a movie called Nailed, which was apparently another screwball comedy that was not finished due to financial reasons and is still languishing somewhere on a shelf. So six years later, in 2010, David O. Russell does return with this inspirational sports movie, uh, once again reuniting with his frequent uh, star, Mark Wahlberg, who, who starred in Huckabee's and in Three Kings. So I guess my first question to, well, let's start with Ben, and I, I think Phil will have an opinion on this too. So six years between, uh, between finished films, is David O. Russell rusty, uh, or does he exhibit in The Fighter the same promise that he exhibited as a, as a scrappy young indie filmmaker in the 90s with, with Flirting with Disaster, uh, with, with Three Kings, and then some would argue, I would argue, I Heart Huckabees? I don't think that he's necessarily the same filmmaker. I think that he's probably found a new voice mm -hmm. would be a, a good way to put it, because he exhibited what seemed to me like a lot of polish, and it, if you told me that this was the product of a seasoned veteran who was at the top of his game, then that's what I would believe. Um, I think that this is an extremely entertaining movie on all counts. I think the performances are great. The movie looks great. It's got 
great music. It the, the boxing sequences are electric. It's just a it's a crowd pleaser. It really is. And if you had told me that the director of I Heart Huckabees had directed this, I might not have believed you mm-hmm. because they're two completely different movies. I think this one is extremely accessible, whereas I Heart Huckabees speaks a different language than English. Just in terms of ex- existential themes right. and what it's trying to say in an extremely pretentious way to its audience, but I do think it accomplishes what it sets out to do. Um, but it's a good, that's a good movie, don't yeah. get me wrong. Yeah. I like I, I Heart Huckabees. But I would even argue that this might be David O. Russell's best movie. Um, but that is also coming from someone who's not exactly the biggest David O. Russell fan uh-huh. for um, several reasons. I think Three Kings was kind of a disappointment back when I saw it after I thought it was an extremely good trailer and it had a lot of promise. Mm-hmm. I actually haven't seen Flirting with Disaster. And oh, I need man. to. I need to. But, no, I, I think that Russell, although you have great performances here, particularly from Christian Bell, who really loses himself in this role as Dickie Eklund, um, I think Russell is the star here. I think he really makes, again, what I think is his finest film, one where it could have easily bought into an enormous amount of cliches, and it, it might have to some degree, but not enough to where you roll your eyes, you get sick to your stomach, anything like that, especially this time of year. And I think that we've got another boxing movie that will contend, I think, for awards this season, and that's a good thing. It seems like boxing movies tend to do that, if done right. right. Of course, um, you know, Undisputed was robbed, I think. <laughs> uh, but, no, I, I think that, um, again, yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm coupling Bell with Russell here, and even Amy Adams, who I think gives a really, really strong supporting performance. Yep. And I'll throw Melissa Leo in there, too, and I haven't seen Frozen River, so this is my first, oh, my first uh, experience with her. But, no, I really like this movie. It's entertaining. It's captivating, and these characters um, are ones that I think are worth buying into. Well, Phil, after the movie, we saw it together on Friday night, and after the movie, I think you you went on Twitter and said something like, The Fighter is a perfect movie, <laughs> and The Fighter is the best sports movie released in my lifetime. Do you care to expand on those thoughts? Well, I was, I was to be honest, I was still riding the high of the movie, and I, I you know, <clears throat> I don't think it's perfect. I've come up with flaws. In the meantime, I thought about it, and I, you know, I have some problems with it. But they aren't problems. They're they they are problems that I would have with this movie if it were a Ron Howard movie. They are not the problems that I have. But if it were a Ron Howard movie, it'd have a million other problems, and it wouldn't be nearly as nearly as good. So you know, because Ron Howard is not capable of of making a movie quite like this anyway. Um, but, uh, you know, they, I think, I think, you know, uh, Mickey's daughter gets, gets shoved aside and that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's a shame. You know, uh-huh. I, I wish she had sort of played more into the, the last act of the movie, but, um, uh, and that's, that's actually, okay. That's really the only flaw I have with this movie. So but, you, um, you kind of love it. So I love it. I love this movie. Um, I, uh, you know. I actually I made that that comment about it being the best sports movie in my lifetime after I looked at a list of every sports movie ever made that was released in theaters, and honestly I I still can't think of any that I like more, um, probably ever, really. But I, you know I'm not gonna say it's the best because I'd have to rewatch old movies to make that determination. But but oh my god, no this movie and and the thing about it is that it's it's heartbreaking. It is heartwarming. It is utterly hilarious. 
and it is inspirational as all hell. You know, I was, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a rejecter of formula. You know, I hate, I hate it when people do what you expect them to do. And so, you know, I, I, uh, when I watch, when I watch a movie and I see it play out basically as a formula Hollywood picture, I'm, I'm usually irritated by that. But this, you know, the fighter is a formula picture through and through, but the difference is that it's David O. Russell behind the camera. It's David O. Russell, you know, writing the script and, and David O. Russell has as unique a voice in Hollywood as, as the Coens or anyone else. And uh, what he came up with is something that only he could come up with, you know, a movie that is this funny and this affecting all the same. Um, you know, there's there's just not many, not many people working in Hollywood who could put something together like that. And and so you know what we just <laughs> I don't even know where to go from that. I mean, it's it's I mean, what how would you react to what I just said? I mean, no, I love the movie too, and I'm I'm so glad that David O. Russell's back because you're right. He brings an electricity and he brings just a momentum to this movie that mm-hmm. that could have been just I don't know stayed and just like just brick like in the way that it just didn't move. I mean, I just picture Ron Howard directing this movie, and I mean that's not a knock against Ron Howard. He's <laughs> made he's made a very good boxing movie himself, but you know what I mean. Like without without the electricity that that mm-hmm. David O. Russell brings to this and just the I mean, just the way it moves. This this movie would have just been another anonymous inspirational sports movie. The fact that it's not, and the fact that it's, I don't know, so in the end moving and doesn't end up like something like I don't know one of any one of these anonymous sports movies that have come out of the past. Few we years. are Marshall. We are Marshall. That's a good one. Um, <laughs> I mean, the fact that it doesn't end up like We Are Marshall is is just a wonderful credit to to Russell and to his actors. Uh, I mean, Ben, you, you brought up the, the ensemble here. I think that it's a perfect ensemble from start to finish from, from not only the, the actors, you know, Wahlberg giving a very understated and very effective performance to the non-actors, such as uh, Mickey O'Keefe, the, the guy who plays uh, well, himself as, as Mickey Ward's trainer. That is actually Mickey O'Keefe uh, in that role. Uh, as himself, um, I think that everybody just brings so much to the table in, in this movie, uh, acting wise. Uh, I mean, it's shot wonderfully by uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Hoyte van Hoytema. I mean, he's he's a he's a Swedish cinematographer whose claim to fame to date was uh, shooting Let the Right One In, which is another terrific looking movie. Um, but I mean, just. I'm so glad to have David O. Russell back because I agree he is a, he is a singular voice uh, in modern cinema, and hopefully this will be the start of a prolific, I guess, second round of his uh, of his filmmaking. Career. Well, he's got a ton of stuff lined up. He's already got two two more movies right. lined up. Uh, he's got the Uncharted movie, which he's he's written half the script for that already, and he's got something else. I can't remember what the other one is called, but uh, it's called Old St. Louis. It's no, a, no, no. That well, then he's got three. If he's that's the one too, uh, no, he's got some some book adaptation. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I can't remember what it is, yeah, but yeah, that was just announced it. about a week and a half ago. Well, I guess he went into hiding after Lily Tomlin emasculated him publicly a couple of times, um, as you can see in those viral <laughs> videos. But uh, no, when you talk about how formulaic. This movie is. I mean, the formula is real life. This movie is based right, on a true story. Right, right, right. According to 
the sources and according to Mickey Ward himself, right. who's been popping up on Sports Center, this movie is pretty close to what the real thing was like. Right, and, right. Um, but had this movie not been based on a true story, and had someone written this, and they easily could have written this story, yeah, I, I might have had problems with it because everything just really comes together a little too nicely. Mickey Ward's journey to the top just happens sort of beautifully. It falls into place just the way he might have wanted it to. Obviously, he hits a left turn, and that's where I was most intrigued during this movie. That's where, that's where I was glued is when they announced that the guy he is originally supposed to fight. In uh, Las Vegas or wherever yeah, it's in he Vegas. is, he he has to drop out because he's got the flu, and so he's got to fight this guy. It's Atlantic got, City, Atlantic City. So oh, he's yeah. got twenty pounds on him. That's to me one of the coolest parts of the movie. It's like, how does this guy face adversity? How did he get through this? Obviously, he didn't. In that case, he went through with the fight because he needed the money, and that that speaks a lot about his character. And then he decides later on in the movie to even give up boxing at one point just because of the humiliation that it causes. And when you have these scenes between him and Amy Adams, which I think are some of the strongest of the movie that don't even include Christian Bell, who might give the performance of the movie, I think those are the most interesting, and those are the heart of what David O. Russell is trying to do. They're trying to get at what drives Mickey Ward um, other than doing this for his broken family who keeps trying to bring him down. He needs stronger people around him, and he is able to get that with the Amy Adams character with O'Keefe and his new manager, Sal, who comes in there. They try and build this strong supporting cast for him to actually achieve what Christian Bale and Melissa Leo or Dickie and Alice claim they're trying to help him achieve but are unable to do that because they are, I won't say bad people, but they're people that have horrible skeletons in their closet and just too much, I guess, baggage that affects what Mickey's trying to do. But where I think that this movie might not succeed is I think that when we have this great big fight at the end mm -hmm. that, that is the welterweight uh, title match against this uh, Irish fighter, I think kind of like Invictus mm -hmm. last year, which is not a great film and is really poorly filmed, especially during the sports sequences. Mm -hmm. I think that this movie is exquisitely filmed with these beta cameras that they've mentioned uh, in interviews uh, like and they're actually filmed by the HBO boxing filmmakers which which I think was a brilliant move. I think that the last fight really kind of loses sight on what this movie was trying to do the entire time. It sort of just kind of peters out and just happens because it's supposed to the stakes that were so high throughout the entire movie just completely deplete and instead of controlling what we've been waiting for the entire time, it just happens, just like you're reading it on a Wikipedia page or something. I just didn't really feel anything. That's strange. I felt something. I, I was pumped up for it. I yelled and clapped. He did. <laughs> I, mean, I, I wonder why. I wonder why though that you felt that because I, I don't feel like the last fight is any less electrically filmed than than any of the others. So I, I mean, that's an. That's an interesting reaction. That well, I, this is I, a dramatic account of what uh -huh. really happened to Mickey Ward. This is a film. This is something right. that David O. Russell has complete and total control over. And he had over everything up to the point of mm -hmm. the last fight. And I just think that there's really no dramatic weight behind, say, the final punch in that fight to where we're told, that's it, or we're told Mickey Ward is about to be the welterweight champion, if that's the case. Something it's about the build-up. It's, it's hard to articulate, I guess, but I just didn't really think that... I, I think that David O. Russell kind of got caught watching the fight himself 
instead of being the director of that fight, which is what exactly what he needed to be. Interesting. I don't, I don't know. I mean, there are so many intangible reasons that that could have been the case, uh, but it worked for me. I mean, maybe something about the build-up or the editing of the fight itself just sort of undercut it. I, I well, I don't it, know. I it structurally that fight is similar to one that that takes place, you know, about twenty minutes earlier in the movie, and that I so I can from that perspective I can I can see. And yeah, no, I mean, it, the the climax of the fight it feels like it's missing a little bit of something because you don't realize that he's won it for about five seconds after he's won it. Right, and, um, and you I know hate that we're spoiling this, but I mean, good lord, this has been publicized that Mickey Ward is the former welterweight champion, and I mean <laughs> something that this film doesn't even go into, or his as the movie even and it happened seventeen years ago. Well, yeah, yeah. and that the movie references his epic bouts with Gotti later in his life, yeah. which I wish that we could have seen, but I understand that that isn't the story that they're trying to tell. Right. Well, I I want to take the moment here to segue to something different and throw down the gauntlet regarding Christian Bale's performance, and I want an excuse to you know, slap my hand in my palm since everybody can see it. He needs to win an Oscar for this movie because I don't think he's ever been as effective in a film as he is here. I think this is, his, is by far his best performance. It's certainly his, his loosest, I guess, most relaxed performance since, I guess, American Psycho. I, I don't know. I, I think that, that this is finally an opportunity for him to show off charisma that has been so lacking from his, I don't know, cinematic output since he started working in the Batman movies. Anybody have a response to that, Christian Bale, for Best Supporting Actor? Phil, I don't know how you feel. I think that Christian Bale is probably, <clears throat> excuse me, going to win the Oscar this year for Supporting Actor. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. I don't think, I mean, this point, he but needs to. I think he will, and I think he deserves it if he does. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to have a problem with it because I think it's a brilliant performance. Give or take great Christian Bale performances, I think that American Psycho is his best performance. You mentioned it, but this is right up there. If you were going to make a top five Christian Bale performances list, this has got to be in there for sure. But, I mean, if you're watching, say, the scene when Mickey is uh, trying to appeal to his family, his entire family is in the room, and uh, he's introduced Amy Adams to the family, and you're just watching Christian Bale off to the side, he's he has barely any lines in the scene, but if you're just watching him, how jittery he is, how out of the moment he is, Christian Bale is outacting everybody in that scene, and he has no lines whatsoever. Everybody is speaking over him, yet there he is just killing it. Yeah. And I I mean Phil, you I mean please feel free to chime in here, but I'm glad you mentioned that scene because that's that's probably my favorite scene in mm-hmm. any movie this year. Meg, what's the problem? The problems. What problems? What problems? Problems. Like what? Like maybe you not showing up on time to train. Like maybe him having to come find you in a crack house when you're supposed to be at the airport. I'm sorry. I don't know who you are. Why are you talking? I'm Charlene. We just met. <laughs> We're together. Do we need to do this again? Hi, I'm Charlene. Hi, I'm Charlene. We're together. What are you going to do, Mick? Listen, some MTV girl works in a bar? What does she know about boxing? I know. They're going to Vegas and getting paid to train year-round. Sounds a hell of a lot better than what you got him doing here. You gonna let her talk like that to your mother? Come on, Mickey. I told you, we're together. This is my girlfriend. I want her here. I have done everything. Everything I could for you, Mickey. This MTV girl comes along. 
Stop calling me an MTV girl, whatever that means. She's wild. <laughs> no, that scene is just spectacular. No, I agree. I agree with y'all about like, Christian. I mean, he should he should win. Yes, I agree. I'll tell you what, one of the better scenes, and it, it includes Amy Adams and Christian Bale, is when he goes to her basically after so much fallout in the movie mm. and appeals to her and says, "Look, let's all get on the same page here and let's fight for Mickey. Let's get in his corner and let's try and achieve this goal that we've had." for so long and I think that those two it's have a wonderful a, scene. it's a great sparring I, match between the two of them I shed a tear <laughs> I'm sure you did <laughs> <laughs> but no I think Amy Adams brings it right there right. with Christian she definitely does. and that leads into a uh, terrific moment of anticipation for this next fight that we're about to see and and I also want to bring up Melissa Leo who uh, I think is wonderful in this movie in the scene that I mean she plays this this sort of shrieking monster for most of the movie but the scene where and, and, and I'm going to tread lightly because it's just such a nice understated emotional moment the scene one of the last scenes that she has with Mickey uh, where he does finally kind of air a grievance is just so wonderfully shot and wonderfully acted between Wahlberg and Melissa Leo, and she her response to what he says uh, is just so unexpected and and you know pretty pretty moving. I Wahlberg's think. great in that scene too. Yeah, he is. Um, but no, Melissa Leo is just so scummy in this movie and so over the top, where she's just unequivocally bad. It mm-hmm. seems, or on as Wahlberg mentions later in the movie, on Dickie's side, the side of this crack addict who. Uh-huh is just this ne'er-do-well who can't get anything right. And at some point, I just gave up and said, okay, she's great. I didn't try to sort of claim that she's overdoing it. She's over the top for over the top sake. I just bought in and thought she was fantastic. She reminds me of, like, the mother of a Jersey Shore character. No, I I think that, again, you have another character in this movie, and people have said this, is Lowell, Massachusetts. And I think Mm -hmm. that David O. Russell really, he really... uh, embraces, I guess, the local attributes of, you know, what's surrounding these people. I'm glad he chose to shoot it where he did, because if you're going to make a movie that is that specific about where somebody comes from and what a town can do to make a person who he is, then you've really got to sort of exploit what Lowell is all about. And I really think that they did that. They really accomplished that. And I think that casting some of the real people, and I didn't know that about O'Keefe until you just said that. He was great. I thought he was just a great actor. He is great. Yeah. So um, that was a nice surprise. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How long is it going to take before we make uh, MTV Girl as a pejorative? (laughs) Because I kind of want, I mean, I, I just love that scene. So much. It was. It's so funny. (laughs) Yeah, but The Fighter is playing nationwide in Tuscaloosa at the Cobb Hollywood 16. When we return, we revisit perhaps the misunderstood Best Picture nominee, The Tourist, as we take a cold, hard look at the Golden Globe nominations. Stay with us. Come on, man. It's Christmas. So ask Santa Claus to give you another car. Merry Christmas, pal. Aspect Radio. Welcome back to Aspect Radio. We're joined, of course, by our friend Phil Owen. I'm sure that both of you, Corey and Phil, have seen, or excuse me, I'm sure that both of you have seen and hopefully somehow processed whatever it is that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is up to with their unveiling of the 2010 Golden Globe nominations. And we don't typically take award shows very seriously, and we especially disregard the meaningless upon meaningless Golden Globes, which now compares favorably to the People's Choice Awards and its cop-out recognitions of these star-ridden pieces of garbage that just basically they just do this to get a few A-listers seated during its NBC broadcast. 
But when you take a look at this year's Best Picture for a comedy or a musical category, and you see Burlesque, Red, Alice in Wonderland, and The Tourist, which we reviewed last week, you ask, why even insult Lisa Cheladenko's The Kids Are Alright by lumping it in with such company? So, Phil, I'll start with you. What do you think? <laughs> well, it's 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 a common line of thought that, you know, the 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 Hollywood foreign press just sort of nominates whoever gives them money or whoever treats them, you know, whoever they're friends with or whatever. And, uh, I mean, it's extremely obvious this year. You know, like, what other conclusion can you come to when you see Alice in Wonderland and Burlesque being mentioned as some of the best movies of the year? I mean, really, what, like, what, what could you, what other conclusion could you make? You don't like Burlesque? (laughs) (laughs) I know, I didn't see that movie, but... But I mean, like I, a lot of people point to. I mean, but no, th- those are movies well, that nobody nobody thinks those movies are good. That's the thing, and everybody hates the tourist. That's that's just uh, like it's not. I'm not saying it's. A, I'm not saying you guys hate it. Me and Ben don't hate it. But but you know that's it. <laughs> that got it. That's a twenty percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Um. But and and yeah. Nope. But seriously, Alice in Wonderland and Burlesque are not really movies that people generally like. Like not not in in Hollywood, you know. It's not the people who are you know critics and 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 people who vote for awards don't really like those movies, and so it's just kind of yeah. And it's not as if it, it's not as if burlesque is catching the world on fire from a box office standpoint either. It's not doing right. very well at all. It, you have another excuse to nominate a musical in this category, and this this is called best comedy or musical, and I think the Hollywood Foreign Press sort of feel, feels pressured sometimes to include a musical, and I don't really know of one this year other than maybe Tangled that might fit the description a little better than Burlesque. And I haven't seen Burlesque, so I don't know whether or not it's a good movie. I chose not to go see it, so I have a feeling about whether or not it's a good movie. But I do think that this is a ridiculous category this year, and I, I only just watched The Kids Are Alright the other night, and obviously it does belong. It's a great film, and I'm glad to see it there, and I really hope it does get recognized. I have a feeling based on the nominations, that it won't. Uh, I mean, if we're going to be using logic to determine what will be awarded Best Picture out of these five, I don't know if they use logic to determine these. Obviously, they didn't. But I also wonder, what is Red doing in this category? Again, I didn't see this film. Uh, I I assume that both of you have seen this, given it's adapted from a comic book. Um, Oh, come on. But... um, no, I mean it's made it's it's made a fair amount of money. I mean it's it's upwards of like ninety million domestically right now. It's got a lot of big stars in it, so I'm sure they wouldn't mind seeing folks like Helen Mirren and Morgan Freeman in the theater that night. And on TV, that might be nice. But really, is it a best picture worthy film? No, what? No, <laughs> no, it's a bad movie. It's really not. And like, I mean, all the talk about getting like the stars of these movies into you know into the the wherever they shoot it you know just getting them at the table i guess and cutting to them whenever they mention their movie you know for all of that talk they didn't nominate any of the stars of burlesque or red and if i were those people i certainly would not go to the golden globes broadcast if only because i wouldn't want to withstand the the barbs inevitably coming their way from host Ricky Gervais, which is the one <laughs> one aspect of the, the show that I am looking forward to. Otherwise, it's a complete joke. I hope that that is his first joke, is how ridiculous this category is, you know? And I, you have to wonder, did they really want Richard Dreyfuss at this year's Golden Globe ceremony? <laughs> because I know that he's in red. 
But look, I reserve judgment for most of these movies. Out of this category, I've only seen The Kids Are Alright and The Tourists, and I've managed to avoid seeing the rest of them. You can see Alice in Wonderland? No, I, I'm glad I haven't yeah, seen yeah. Alice in Wonderland. I mean, you yet. shouldn't. It's just surprising. But I mean, if we're taking a look at the rest of the nominations for the Golden Globes, I think drama is pretty much what we expected sans the absolute mm-hmm. snubbing of the Coen Brothers' True Grit. And you mentioned earlier in the show that it was actually submitted into the comedy or musical category, which seems appropriate now that we've seen the movie. Mm -hmm. And that's what I would have nominated it for as well. But I'm looking at Best Picture Drama, and I see Black Swan, The Fighter, Inception, King's Speech, and Social Network. I haven't seen the King's Speech, but I've seen the rest of them, and I think that's a pretty solid list there. Yeah. I don't want to step on next week's show. Right, well, but we don't have to, but I mean, you, without without talking specifically about one of the five movies on that list... Yeah, it's can solid. You, yeah, it's solid. Yeah, it's solid. Okay, we'll stop there. I, I haven't guess. seen The King's Speech either. Here's what I think is interesting, and Phil, I'll bring this up to you. Four names, and I'm excluding Tom Hooper here because he doesn't really fit into this category, and I mm-hmm. think that The Damn United is a strong movie, and I expect King's Speech to be as well, but I see four names that really stick out and four names that I don't think we expected to see in the Oscar conversation. And I think it's going to be really interesting if they are in that category come February, whenever the Oscars are going to be taking place. Darren Aronofsky, David Fincher, Christopher Nolan, and David O. Russell could be nominated for Best Director this year. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're kind of part of the same of the same ilk in terms of they come from a similar era and we sort of lump them together as these sort of young up and coming filmmakers to watch who make these uh, subversive films that tend to bend genres and they make these highly original movies that we have to see more than once. So I think it's kind of nice to see these guys who whom we have followed for years now start to get rewarded by the mainstream. Well yeah, no, I mean these are definitely these are my people. Sort of, you know, I've always, I've always been fans of all of these people, really. You know, Seven is, is my favorite movie. You know, like, David O. Russell, I've, I've been eating, eating up what he puts out for forever. Um, you know, it's funny, uh, one of, I think I Heart Huckabees was one of the last movies I saw on a date. That's kind of really sad. But, uh, (laughs) but it's true. That, 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 that girl, she she well the one of the reason it was cuz that girl who I almost married later on um she got really angry with me for making her watch that but uh you know and Darren Aronofsky who who you know who we all became acquainted with because of you know <laughs> because of Requiem for a Dream and uh you know it's like how I don't think anybody ever really expected him to to get any sort of mainstream recognition and then Christopher Nolan, who who you know we have Memento, who was that was that was my favorite movie at one time, just because it's and that's still one of my favorite thrillers ever. It's still a mind blowing mystery picture. It really is. And uh, but yeah, just these are these are people who you know they were indie people. They weren't people who we thought they weren't they weren't mainstream in any way. They were our they were our you know our cool movie people people. It's you know us as as like the the film nerds as the sort of movie snobs that that was that was what we liked and we you know it wasn't it wasn't what sort of counter to the it was it was like well, it was in every academy right right and it was it was hip it was it was cool it wasn't like yeah it wasn't it wasn't like ron howard 
who again <laughs> I bring him up because Ben sort of berated me for for saying mean things about him. But no, I mean I don't dislike Ron Howard and as as you're you big know, Angels and Demons fan. Yeah. <laughs> Which isn't bad actually. I, that I movie like is it. horrible. Um but anyway, the point is we have four names here who are who are, you know, I you know, we're we're in our 20s all of us. You know, these are these are the, sort of the people we came of age in in movies with. And uh, and so it's sort of profound to see them be you know loved like this and and, and receive this kind of recognition, even if it is only from the Golden Globes. Well, yeah, even if it is only from the Golden Globes, but it you know it's being it's being you know it's not just from the Golden Globes, right? And I don't think it's going to stop there, honestly. And Corey, I don't know what you think about this, but it's not as if these four guys have sold out to the Hollywood system. No, no. and and I would not at all. I yeah. would actually qualify and say that Black Swan is decidedly not mainstream. Like in any it's way, it's an art movie. It is an art movie, like very mm-hmm. much so. So, so while while Inception and, and the Social Network and the Fighter are certainly among the more accessible pictures from each of those respectable directors, not that I, I think David Fincher has really ever made an inaccessible. Yeah, he's movie. he's never. Been. Uh, I mean, Seven made a hundred million dollars in nineteen ninety five. Right. So, I mean, but but I I do think I, these guys haven't lost their edge, and that's important to say. And if if this list makes it to the Academy, and again, we haven't seen the King's Speech yet, but but if you can imagine, like, Tom Hooper perhaps being replaced by Joel and Ethan Cohen, uh, that's pre- that's a that's a cinephile's dream or Polanski. Or, well, I don't think that'll happen. <laughs> it but, won't happen, but, but I, I can dream. You know, as a member of the old guard, it would only be appropriate, actually. <laughs> and again, I don't want to step on next week's show if Polanski were in there in the best director nominee as the best director nominee with with Darren Aronofsky for Black Swan I think that would be appropriate um but looking at the acting nominations to move on <laughs> it's solid lineup and best actor you know I think that's pretty much going to be best actor drama well best yeah I, I should, I, should <laughs> say that. I, I think that what we have there is looking more and more likely to be what we get at the Oscars perhaps taking out Mark Wahlberg and replacing him with with uh, Jeff, Jeff Bridges, Bridges. Yeah. yeah, possibly, and it seems that, and without giving the Hollywood Foreign Press Association any more credit than we already have here, it seems like they were, along with the rest of the governing bodies of the awards season, were ready to push the button as soon as the MPAA cleared Blue Valentine of its NC-17 rating that it got, because we do see nominations for Michelle Williams and Ryan Gosling right. for Blue Valentine. Really it's looking forward to that movie. It's a film that we haven't seen, unfortunately. Hopefully we will here in the, in the coming weeks, somehow. But we do see Jennifer Lawrence nominated for Winter's Bone, something I think will happen at the Oscars. I'm looking down this list. I don't foresee Halle Berry or Nicole Kidman making an appearance. I think Nicole Kidman possible. will. You think she will at I this point? I think she will, because I, I think that the category confusion has sort of sunk uh, the, the woman from another year. Leslie Manville, I think that she she's not looking too good, but uh, Nicole Kidman is, and people are finally seeing Rabbit Hole, which is now in limited release. Uh, <laughs> people are finally seeing people it. People are finally seeing it. But yeah, I, I think the the acting categories in comedy are also kind of a joke. Yeah, oh my drugs. God. Anne Hathaway is horrible, horrible. She she is a bad performance in that movie. To be honest, I I, I really think so. And that I mean she. For the first sentence, the first line she read, I was annoyed with her. Well, just I guess to to sum up the the Golden Globes, but, they're, they're, they're but they, well, of, they want Taylor Swift to show up, which is why they nominated Jake Gyllenhaal. 
because oh, right. they're dating now. Oh, that and makes so sense. they're trying to get Taylor Swift to go, so they were, they have to give that movie some love. Well, it's like, gee, do you think they want Johnny Depp on stage? Because he's nominated <laughs> twice within the same category. And he'll win for one of them. He'll <laughs> he win for Alice will. in Wonderland. Watch it happen. Because they're not going to give it to Paul Giamatti or Kevin Spacey for movies that nobody saw. And nobody's really seen Love and Other Drugs either. And nobody cares about Jake Gyllenhaal. So, no. so Johnny Depp is going to win. As they can get him in the room, that's all that matters. Yep, yep. So, yeah, Johnny Depp will win. It's nice to see the kids are all right, ladies nominated uh, for Best Actress in this category. Julianne Moore is probably going to get left out, obviously, when it comes time for Oscars, even though she gives an equally great performance in that movie. But if we're looking at what we, what might happen at the Oscars, I do see Michelle Williams, Natalie Portman, and Jennifer Lawrence getting nominated. I do see Annette Benning obviously, as being a shoe-in. But I'm sort of looking for that fifth person. If that's Nicole Kidman, I think it will be. Remains to be seen. Yeah, but again, supporting actor, we've got a solid category there. Uh, obviously, Michael Douglas. That was expected, I think, to some extent. For the Globes, I don't think that's going to translate to the Academy. Probably not, but it would not surprise me if Michael Douglas wins this. Because, I mean, the Hollywood Foreign Press obviously is an unpredictable organization based on what we've seen here with all of the nominees. But also, if you saw Michael Douglas's reaction to mm-hmm. his nomination, I think it was, quote, boy, I was waiting for some good news. So maybe... <laughs> and he's, he's uh, you know, he's had, had a really rough, rough year. He's had a rough year, absolutely. And it, it, would not, it, it would not be a bad moment at all if he happened to win this for what is a, a fun performance. But let's take a look at the SAG nominations sure. that you have printed out for us here, Corey. Thank God. It's much appreciated. Yeah, these uh, these are these are better nominations. Um, what we have here, I think... And this is actually will have some bearing yeah, on the Oscars. Yeah, Because most these definitely. people vote for all the Oscars. Uh, what we have here, th- I think, are categories that will translate more directly to the Academy's acting lineups. Specifically, I want to draw your attention to the Best Actor category. Bridges, Duvall, Eisenberg, Firth, and Franco... I think those are the five names exactly that we're going to see from the Academy in the Best Actor lineup, uh, which is, I guess, too bad for Ryan Gosling, uh, but I think Robert Duvall is going to get the the gray hair vote for a particularly gray hair movie, to put it indelicately. Hilary Swank popping up, I think, in, in the Best Actress category is something of a surprise because people did not really see or respond well to Conviction, and Sam Rockwell was seen as, uh, as the I guess, the safer awards bet from that movie. I haven't seen Conviction. I missed it when it when it played in Birmingham, and it certainly didn't play here. But I think the first four names there, uh, Annette Bening, Nicole Kidman, Jennifer Lawrence, and Natalie Portman, are all butt-locked for the Academy at this point. It's just a matter of, of who's going to jump into that that category. Probably Michelle Williams at this point instead of Hillary Swank, which is a shame because we're, we're, we're denied Swank versus Benning around three, <laughs> even though neither of them will win this year. And I, supporting actor, as always, is just a, an absolute cluster of a, of a category because it can go... I mean, there are about ten names vying for five spots and, and ten people with legitimate shots. As far as locks, the only locks I'm willing to say are Jeffrey Rush and, and Christian Bale. I think it's going to end up coming down to them, too. Yeah, if, if I, more I do, people, too. If more people are able to see The King's Speech, and it's supposed to go semi-wide under a thousand screens, I think by Christmas Day, uh-huh. that would be interesting. But Jeffrey Rush has already won one, and I think Christian Bale is a guy that people are interested in in handing an Oscar, given his credentials and given this performance. It's a great one. And like you said, it's one of his best. I'm very glad to see John Hawks in this movie. Yeah, that's great. That's a great performance. And John Hawks is a great actor. It's a great movie. So, yeah, it makes sense that that would happen. But, again, what doesn't make sense, and this is on account of the Golden Globes, too, Jeremy Renner appears for his 
supporting performance in the town. Again, this is inexplicable to me. It makes no sense, and I'm, I'm still in full denial over seeing the town show up in any of these categories other than maybe sound effects editing. Ugh. Phil's a fan of that movie. I really like the town. Oscar-worthy, though? Yes. You really think that? Yeah. Wait, do you? Jeremy, no, well, I mean, not the movie as a whole, but Jeremy Renner, yeah. Yeah. I really like Jeremy Not this Renner year. I mean, I, I Andrew Garfield, nine times out of ten over Jeremy Renner, especially this I year. I think I prefer Jeremy Renner to Andrew Garfield this year. Wow. I think, I think Andrew Garfield's really running out of steam right yeah, now. Yeah, I think he is, and too. you know what? I mean, I don't think that this is going to happen, but I, I had said this one day, and then the next day this guy got a precursor award. I had said that it would not shock me if Army Hammer managed to sneak into the conversation. And then he's the next just, day, the Toronto critics too late give that. him Best Supporting Action. I don't think it's too late. Because, I, I mean, I he do. just picked up a precursor, and the campaign is underway. I think they're really pushing hard for Andrew Garfield to get this Supporting Actor nomination. I mean, I, of of the supporting actors in the social network, Army Hammer was my favorite. Yeah, but, no, I'd, I, would, I, would I, go, I would go with Army Hammer above... Either of the two I was just comparing. Right. So, so I, but I, don't, I just don't think it's going to happen. I, it would be. It reminds me of 2006 when The Departed came out, uh-huh. when Jack Nicholson was the surefire, easy nomination for that because he's the big star. He's got an extremely showy performance. Yet Mark Wahlberg is the one who actually steals scenes and earned the nomination, and it did kind of catch people off guard. I yeah. think that this is something that could happen. I don't think it's it going could. to. I, I, think, I think the Departed comparison, though, is spot on, because like the Departed, the social network has a, has a glut of really memorable supporting performances, and they can't all be recognized, but you, you're right. I mean, it could be the one that we least expect, and you never know. Justin Timberlake could be it. Uh, but I, I kind of doubt that. Uh, as far as supporting supporting actress, I think that if you take out Mila Kunis and replace her with Jackie Weaver, if you replace M- Mila Kunis with Jackie Weaver, that's the five you've got for the Academy. But Mila Kunis, I mean, these are two pretty strong precursors, so you never know. Good to see Haley Steinfeld there, like we said earlier in our review of True Grit. She's terrific. And, and of course, the two women from The Fighter, who both are, are just excellent. And and as far as uh, the the big award, outstanding performance by a cast, that's I mean, there's a pretty strong five ensembles there. Again, excepting the King's Speech, which we haven't seen, but you can't really go wrong with the ensembles from the Fighter, the Kids Are All Right, or the Social Network, and then Black Swan, of course, is anchored by by a terrific Natalie Portman performance. Inception snub. I'm sorry. I mean, these are good these are good movies and everything, but Inception, I think should be on all of these lists, well, too. I mean, and, and, and honestly, it, if we're talking about the strength of a cast, not Black exactly. Swan shouldn't be there. Well, yeah, I mean, there are some... There, There is obvious... We're going to talk about that later. There's obviously one great performance that everybody is talking about. But, but I mean, I, as, a, as far as the cast, yeah, yeah, the strength right. of a cast, Inception has a stronger cast, giving a stronger ensemble performance than Black Swan has a stronger ensemble. And I don't think that's taking anything away from Black Swan. I just think that Inception has a much bigger cast at the top of its game than Black Swan does. Yeah, and people sometimes misunderstand this category. And I think, you know, the folks that are voting for it misunderstand this as best picture, too. When you have to look at the name of the award, it being best ensemble. And Inception, I think, is a no-brainer. To be honest, I mean, my best, my favorite ensemble of the year had no chance of being recognized in this. But that is, of course, Scott Pilgrim versus the world with just endless, seemingly endless, amazingly funny supporting performances all over the place in that movie. Let's take one last break and return with quick thoughts on another pair of brand new releases as well as our DVD picks. So please do stick around. This is Aspect Radio. You see Santa Claus tonight? You better run, boy. 
You better run for your life. Aspect Radio. We're back here on Aspect Radio, joined by Phil Owen. Corey, I know that you have seen upwards of 15 movies at the theater in the past <laughs> week or so, including two mainstream releases that aren't getting much buzz or the buzz that they might have hoped anyway. So please do. You and Phil, please tell us about them. Well, we'll start by by talking about uh, the big tentpole release from Walt Disney Pictures this week, a Tron Legacy sequel to the 1982 science fiction film Tron. Uh, a lot is riding on this. Uh, Disney had two really terrible uh, mainstream live-action tentpoles earlier this year with Prince of Persia and The Sorcerer's Apprentice, and neither of those really performed the way they hoped uh, at the box office. So Tron Legacy is sort of the uh, last great hope for Walt Disney's live-action division and has been promoted really heavily for about a year. Yep. So, so Phil, why don't why don't we talk, start off by talking about uh, well, did this live up, I guess, to the lofty expectations set by the original <laughs> Tron? Uh, you know, what is this movie? You know, what what do we what do we have here with Tron Legacy? Well, before I address that, I'll say that that its financial status is still probably in limbo because it made just under forty four million dollars this weekend, mm-hmm. um, which when it, it's Christmas, you know, holiday season, so who knows where it's going to go from there? But um, it won't make back its budget, probably. Um, I mean, it has, like, $170 million budget and a $150 million promotional budget. Yep, yep. And uh, well, that's that's worldwide, keep in mind, the, okay. the promotional budget. Put that aside. Okay, so Tron Legacy. Okay, Tron Legacy is, to put it, I guess the shortest way I can describe this, is to say if, if you took a 70-hour Japanese RPG video game and cut it down, cut the like the the cutscenes down to a two-hour movie. You'd have something like Tron Legacy because it doesn't make any sense and it's stupid. And they just introduce new plot devices just because, and there's no reason to do it, but they just do it. And they're just like, oh, everything that we've known about this world has changed because it's a new thing. Blah blah blah. But at the same time, it looks really pretty and it's cool to look at. It's just, it's fun to watch, and because it's only two hours long instead of 70 hours long, it's not totally insufferable. Well, yeah, I I kind of agree with you. This movie is aggressively stupid in pretty much every aspect of its plot. The screenplay written by uh, two former writers from Lost, Edward Kitsis and Adam Horowitz, and they did not really uh, earn their paychecks for this one. Or maybe they they earned about... As as much as they did for their they as as much as they earned their paychecks on loss. Oh well, there's a last loss couple last couple scenes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, um, <laughs> I don't want it brings up bad memories. I mean, it's um, like I guess it's kind of like if you watch Lost and and if you if you took like the last season of Lost and edited down in a two hour thing, you would have something that's kind of like this. Well, one stupid review- and doesn't make any sense. <laughs> And just is offensively dumb. It's painful to me. But unlike Lost, there's cool action in this movie, and it's in 3D. And Well, uh, yeah. one thing that I want to say, a review of this movie that I read, and I, I can't give any more credit than that, I'm afraid, but it is not my original thought, um, said that the movie <sighs> suffers from simultaneously having too many rules about its world and not having enough. And like you said, it does kind of make stuff up as it goes along. Well, yeah, um, they they don't set the ground rules early on, and so none of it, so they just and, but they start throwing stuff in left and right as it as it goes along, and it and it's just sort of irritating. 
But uh, the movie stars Garrett Hedlund as young Sam Flynn, son of Kevin Flynn, played by Jeff Bridges, reprising his role from the original, the famed designer from uh, the software giant Incom who went missing back in the mid-80s. His son catches up with him. Um, it turns out he's been in this computer world, uh, the, the grid, the whole time. Sam gets in some misadventures there, facing off against a digitally de-aged version of his father, a computer program called Clue, also played by Bridges. And a lot has been said about this effect of digitally de-aging Jeff Bridges to be the main villain of the piece. Uh, was this effective for you? Or <laughs> no, it... it looked horrible. This was this was a, a joke of an effect for a movie with a budget like this. It's on par with with watching like one of the Star Wars prequels, and you're like, okay, they threw 130 million dollars at this, and it still looks like a cartoon and that's how this is you know this this is a movie that is it's effects heavy to be sure and and you know once he goes into the the uh the fake world there's effects in every single shot and it's it all of it looks good except for this face so that yes i guess you can give it that and it's probably just whatever process they used for for de-aging him was just a bad process and it's not like you know a mixture of makeup and whatever like they didn't like like in benjamin button it's just they try to do some some motion capture, and it looks like the polar. Experience. It just looks really bad. Well, I mean, the the problem is that it just is jarring when next to everybody else, right? Yeah, you know, well, everybody else has real faces, and then you got this this thing that is just inexplicable. Well, Tron Legacy is playing everywhere. I I give it a hesitant recommendation, if only for the visuals. The score uh, by Daft Punk, which is pretty terrific. Oh yeah, okay, uh, that's it, it does it does Absolutely. what a good original score should, which is makes the movie it's supporting even better than it should be. But for my money, the best special effect in Tron Legacy is Olivia Wilde. Uh, moving on to uh, James L. Brooks's. <laughs> she has uh, a great smile. Film. She she does. She does indeed. Uh, James L. Brooks returns to screens after uh, I guess another six year absence. <laughs> He's regular David O. Russell. Uh, he was last in theaters uh, with Spanglish, 2004. Really? Um, wow. Yep. And now he's back with 2010's How Do You Know, starring Reese Witherspoon, Owen Wilson, and Paul Rudd. This is an attempt to make another broadcast news style love triangle comedy drama. But, Phil, how did this one turn out? Always does. Uh, it didn't turn out all that great at all, really. This movie's pretty, it's pretty, just, it's pretty much just. Nothing. There's just nothing there. There's just nothing to it. It's uh, it's boring and media. It's just mediocre in every as every respect. You know, the funny thing, the thing I got out of it is 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 that man. I really like Paul Rudd because he is he was trying. He was really he was he trying was. really hard, and it worked sometimes only because of him being who he is. But. I mean, that's how it's always been for him when he's in a bad movie. Well, the thing is, I, um, I would actually agree with that, and I would say that Owen Wilson does a pretty good job. Yeah, no. Though his character, he doesn't have a character. No, he He's has, not playing a character yet. He, he has just, oh, I don't even know what to say about his character. He, basically, he is, he plays a, uh, you know, a pitcher for the for the Nationals, and uh, he he's just a complete idiot. And he immature. Uh, he's immature, and he he doesn't realize that women want monogamy, and he you know he just it's just complete nonsense. I don't understand 
why this character exists. Well, the the movie is anchored from a central performance by Reese Witherspoon, who plays a, uh, a softball player who was just cut from the U.S. USA team or something like that. Yeah. Now, sort basically, of in her basically, life. she's Jenny Finch. If you know anything about USA team softball. Now, for me, the lead performance by Reese Witherspoon was remarkably ineffective <laughs> because she's not given. Uh, she ba- she basically plays this totally unlikable shrew the whole time who doesn't really get any moments of levity or like lightheartedness to sort of redeem herself. Basically, just, she she looks like she's confused by everyone everything that's happening the whole movie. And I just don't buy her reactions <laughs> to I guess either of these men. What what's funny is what I thought after after watching the movie was that Reese Witherspoon plays this character basically like most random like if you, if you go to a bar and you meet like a random girl here in Tuscaloosa and you're like and you're a weird person like me they're pretty much going to react to to you the same way Reese Witherspoon reacts to everything in this movie and it's it was just it was really it was really kind of amusing in that way and I was like I know this I've ha- I've, I've seen this reaction a lot in my time <laughs> But no, you know, it, you know, I just, I try to, I just try to talk to women, and uh, you know, it just doesn't go well, and they just react like everything I say is just insane. So, and that's, so, but well, that's maybe, I mean, that I, really, that is really how Reese Witherspoon reacts to everything. She just looks like she just makes this weird face anytime anybody says anything, right? And she, she's just like, oh, ugh. one reason well, that's I, interesting. <clears throat> Look, I haven't seen this movie, but one reason that I haven't really been looking forward to it. And I might eventually, is because Reese Witherspoon, to me, along with a few other actresses, and I'll include Jennifer Aniston especially, and maybe Julia Roberts, they come across as like these man-hating women who kind of buy into the idea that most, if not all, men don't have a chance with them, and they don't appreciate them, or would not be, or would not ever be in a position to appreciate them, and so relationships totally hinge on what they're doing for her. That's interesting because it seems like Reese Witherspoon is playing that playing a character who doesn't have that viewpoint while simultaneously acting that way. So yeah. it's, it, there's yeah. sort of a cognitive dissonance there. She, she said yeah, she, she actually says what she says is that she wants at one point she's like I need insens- insensitivity and that's why she's hanging out with with Owen Wilson. And uh, she she's like, I don't want you to ask me about my day, blah blah blah. But she gets really mad later when he doesn't ask her about her day. Anyway, and and, and she, but yeah, she acts she acts. Her body says one thing while her mouth says something else. It's really it's really weird. And at the end of the movie, it, what it does come down to at the end is that Paul Rudd, you know, is is you know. It's, it's it's what Ben just said. How do you know is uh, playing everywhere, theaters nationwide. Jack Nicholson is also in it, but for all the time he has in the movie and for what he does, oh, wow. you would not even know it. He has said Jack Nicholson is also in it through that throughout that entire discussion, and that, that's kind of what I. That's kind of the feeling. He's, only, he's wasted. A, he's, he's totally only, he's got he's got about two lines that are worth anything. He's I mean there are only two lines that are worth anything in this whole movie, which is a terrible thing coming from James L. Brooks, who is a talented writer. Maybe he should have revised the script a couple more times. I don't know. It's almost like he reverted back to his 1970s-style sitcom leanings with this. It's just not worth anything. I, I would not say that it is mediocre. I would say that it's bad. It's a bad movie. <laughs> tell, me, tell, me if I'm wrong. Away. tell me if I'm wrong, but was I know Jack Nicholson is obviously doing his buddy James L. Brooks a favor by being in this movie, but I want to say that 
He wasn't the first person cast in this role. I don't know. Yeah, well, whatever. I don't really think it was. It was not a. It it, it's not really a Jack Nicholson role. It's either. not at all. He doesn't do anything with it. It's right. He's like an extremely weak character. Right. Or it, just. He, I mean, he's just sleazy, but he's not charming sleazy. You know, he doesn't. Right. He, it's like he's anybody could play he's in the a sleazy guy. But he who just stands around. But he's only he's only actually sleazy like in one scene. The rest of the movie, he's just there and yells. I'll tell you. I'll tell you what. If if James L. Brooks had cast his other buddy Albert Brooks in this role, it might have been a little better. Okay. Actually, yeah, Albert Brooks probably would have been. He would knock it out. It would have been. It would have been funny. It would have been funny. Every movie needs a little more Albert Brooks. I think. Well, I think, I think so the thing is, Jack Jack Nicholson's just a little more intense when he's yelling, and he his character yells a lot in this movie. But I think Albert Brooks is just funny when he yells. So when he's yelling, it would have just been more. Uh, it would have been more comedy. It would have been more comedy. Yeah, blessed needed comedy. It, it would have been less like dreadfully unfunny comedy and awkward. Well, time now for DVD picks. Now, Phil, please do start us off with whatever's on your queue or whatever you already have at home. Well, what I'm gonna watch today, I think, is Valhalla Rising. It's a good movie. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I'm pretty pumped about watching it. And yeah, it's on Netflix. It's streaming from Netflix now, and so that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna. How do you pronounce the director's that? name? I don't know. Nicholas Winding Refn. Refn. I don't know. R-E-F-N. <laughs> if you are a special... Uh, if, if you know, I guess, Norwegian. He's from... He's Where not, is he from? He's from... He's from... Yeah. He's from Copenhagen. He, he did Pusher Trilogy. Okay, if you know. Uh, he's from he's from Copenhagen, I think. So, uh, he's from the same place that... <laughs> That Mads Mikkelsen comes from. Right. So it's a good movie. It's like it's like a Alejandro Jodorowsky film in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. It starts crazy, it gets crazier, and yeah, it's a, it's a Viking movie like, for those of you who don't know what this is. Yeah, it's 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 pretty it's pretty intense. But what about you? Viking action. What's new this week? Well, Tuesday uh, you can pick up uh, Salt, the Angelina Jolie don't, action movie. Don't pick that up though. Yeah, I wasn't really a fan of that one, but. I mean, Roger Ebert gave it four stars. It made a good bit of money. <laughs> I don't really understand that. Uh, it, it, I like my dumb action movies to also be kind of humorous and fun, like the A-Team and not somber and, and portentous. And trying like, to make like a political point or right. something. Right. I mean, this this treats – this is like a Bourne movie that is not anchored in any physical universe that we know. It's, it's just – it's not fun. It's just not fun to see stupid crap happen when – when the movie takes it seriously. It just takes it so seriously. But you can also check out... There's no Michael... joy in the ridiculous action in that movie. Okay. Yeah. You can also check out Michael Douglas's Golden Globe-nominated performance as Gordon Gecko in Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps, also hitting DVD and Blu-ray. We reviewed that, I guess, back in September. Uh, also, Emma Stone's Golden Globe-nominated uh, performance in Easy A. This is a good movie. This is a good movie. It's very it. funny. Uh, she's, I mean, she honestly deserves that Golden Globe nomination. It, it is a funny comedy. The first hour is probably a lot better than the last half hour because I, there's a point where the movie kind of gets a little too silly for my taste. But, but I mean, she's golden in it. Stanley Tucci and Patricia Clarkson are golden in it as her parents. It's a fun movie. And I think that rounds it up. Well, I like I said, just watch The Kids Are Alright, finally, which came out this past... Tuesday on the Red Box. That's just a wonderful movie, isn't it? Finally made available. It is a lot of it is a lot of fun. And I'll tell you my favorite scene and one of the best scenes in the movie and what I think earned Annette Benning the amount of praise that she's getting and will probably be her Oscar clip if they do that this year. They've kind of abandoned that. Yeah. Um but for whatever reason. But it's when number one, when she sings the Joni Mitchell song, mm-hmm. which is absolutely brilliant, and number two, when she comes to a certain realization 
the yeah. camera just sort of holds on her. It's just a really beautiful piece of acting. Really wonderful performance. And I really there. liked my, uh, Mark Ruffalo a lot in it, too. It was, yeah. good. it was kind of like almost a continuation of his Terry character, and you can count on me if uh, not. A, lot, a little little more daffy, I guess. Yeah. But it was a lot of fun. And I've also, I'm also really interested in watching The Red Shoes, finally. Oh, it's so good, um, Ben. Oh, it's yeah, so good. Yeah, you know, having seen Black Swan now, we're going to discuss that later. I, I think it's probably required viewing. And I also have a Criterion DVD that my sister owns, and she left it in Tuscaloosa, thankfully. It's this Martha Graham ballet DVD. Mm-hmm. It's it's really good. I've seen part of it, and I have to watch the whole thing now. I've also got uh, The Money Pit that I need to watch. Our friend Ben Stark, <laughs> our friend, our friend ben Stark has recommended that. It's a fun movie. I do yeah. look forward to that I like as the well. Money Pit. And a uh, Christmas movie that I want to watch that got a lot of acclaim either last year or the year before, A Christmas Tale. I haven't seen that yet either. Matthew O'Mark is in it. And Catherine Deneuve, I believe, is in it as yep. well. It's got a pretty nice ensemble of French actors, mm-hmm. so I do look forward to watching that. But opening nationwide and in Tuscaloosa at the Cobb Hollywood 16 this week, The Fighter, starring Mark Wahlberg, Christian Bell, and Amy Adams, Tron Legacy, with Garrett Hedgeland and Jeff Bridges. How Do You Know, with Reese Witherspoon, Paul Rudd, Owen Wilson, and that guy, Jack Nicholson. And Yogi Bear, <coughs> Black Swan, is now playing in Birmingham at the Carmike Summit, as well as the Rave Motion Picture Theaters at Patton Creek and Lee Branch. Where did you see it? I saw it at Lee Branch. Okay, I saw it at Patton Creek. No no walkouts, too. And we'll talk about that later yeah. again. There was, one, there was one in my theater. There was a couple walked out. We do hope to discuss that movie, Black Swan, on our next show. We've both seen it, but we just didn't want to pile everything into one show, so we're going to save that one for sure. It probably deserves a little more time to resonate anyway. Yeah, it so. does. And I, hopefully the King's Speech will be opening around here uh, on Christmas Day. I'd like to see that. That'd be a good Christmas Day movie. Yeah. Another exciting announcement, actually, speaking of True Grit, we're going to have back religion columnist Kathleen Falsani, who joined us back in February to discuss her book, The Dude Abides, which is a great read. It explored the religious themes in the Coen Brothers films. She's going to come back to talk about True Grit sometime in January, so we're really thrilled about that. Yeah, True Grit wears its sort of religious themes on its sleeve, so that'll be a good discussion, I think. Definitely. Well, you can email any of your feedback to 90.7movies at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at aspectradio or twitter.com slash aspectradio. You can download this and other episodes of the show on our blog at aspectradio.tumblr.com. We'll also post the podcast on Twitter and Facebook, and you can now find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash aspectradio. So head on over there and become a fan by clicking the like button. Please do check us out on AL.com as well, the state's number one news and information service. Just scroll down the homepage to the entertainment section and find us, or you can just search Aspect Radio. Do not forget to visit our friend Matt Scalici's website, filmnerds.com, where we have a new feature on the blog. That's filmnerds.com slash blog. It's our December or holiday recommends post where we talk about our favorite Christmas movies. It's a really fun one. And thanks to you, Phil, for dropping in. We really do appreciate it. Where can people find you online? I'm at GameFront.com. I just learned my my overlords this week told us that we are the sixth largest game gaming site on the on on the web. So congratulations! Yeah, <laughs> you're easily the most prolific writer on that site too. So. And uh, yeah, and so uh, yeah, and and in a couple months we're actually we're actually on pace to exceed two of uh, the other larger sites. And so by Probably about midpoint next year will be the fourth largest site in the world. So that's pretty that's pretty big. Roll tied to that. We'll all check it out. And uh, we do also want to extend a very, very special thanks to our new friend and contributor, Andrew Richardson, who is actually here with us right now recording this on video as well. If you're not watching that, that's something that maybe we can check out in the future as well. So we hope to embed that video 
on our blog post, so be sure to check that mm-hmm. out. And thank you very much, Andrew. We do appreciate that. And until next week, I'm Ben Flanagan. And I'm Corey Kraft. This is Aspect Radio. Thanks for listening. It is. It's a bit nipply out. I mean nippy out. <laughs> what am I saying? Nipple? <laughs> oh, there is a nip in the air, though. Can I take something out for you? Aspect Radio.